grateful that we can come and hear your voice through your word and your servant. Give your servant the right words to speak and whatever is from you, Lord, let that remain in our hearts and minds and anything that's said and spoken that is not from you, Lord, I pray that it would be long forgotten. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I was debating whether I should start the sermon out this way or not. But I thought it's important, and so I will. On Monday, we had our Memorial Day barbecue, and many of you were there, uh, and you seemed to have a good time. There was a lot of food and, and fellowship and fun together, and many of you even got to know each other, and new people were there and seemed to be welcomed. But there was at least one person who came and left and felt unnoticed. And it wasn't her first time feeling that way. And so she told me afterwards that she won't be coming back to our church. That's hard to take. We've been talking about the unity of the church and the way we are to build each other up in love that the ministers minister the Word and equip the saints, that's all of us, to do ministry we're pursuing maturity in christ we said growing up into the head who is christ and that includes doctrinal stability that's how we're maturing true but also it includes deep and true and caring community and so when someone in the community feels so left alone it's crushing to all of us you see the context of what we're going to look at this morning and have been looking at for a while is the local church paul has already laid out the gospel in the first three chapters of ephesians and he's laid out the glory of that gospel how profound it is how deep it is how the grace of god has changed us and done the work from beginning to end in chapter 4, though, Paul takes a little turn, we said. He turns toward gospel living from the theology to the ethics. How does that reality of the indicatives, right, the reality of the grace of God that's transformed us, how does that now play out in our lives? How does that play out in day-to-day -day interactions? How does that play out particularly, Paul starts with, within Christian community, the local church, Christians doing life together, Remember, he, he called us to be eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He explained that we're already one according to the gospel. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We, we looked at that a few weeks back. We're already one because of the gospel, but Paul says we also need to be eager to maintain that unity and build up that body. And beloved, it takes work. It takes a, a particular mindset. A transformed way of viewing ourselves and a transformed way of viewing each other for the Lord's sake because of the gospel. Last week we talked about the need to put off the old man and put on the new. And one author, as he gets to the passage we're going to look at this morning, he says that the next passage gets to the nitty-gritty of what that newness is. 
And that newness that he starts with is newness that has to do with unity in the community, life together. Life together means that, beloved, we're looking out for each other. We're thinking about ways in which we can build and not tear down. Encourage and not abandon. Ways to display that we, this thing called the church, are built by grace, fueled by grace, and so reveal grace. We are a grace-built community. So what does that look like? While we work through this passage this morning, what I don't want is that this remain abstract and theoretical to us. And so I urge you again to look around and I want you to think about the people in this sanctuary and in this church family. Put a face to it. Think about people that you see week in and week out and interact with. This is who the Word of God is talking about. And I want us to think about what Paul says and do it when he writes in the very passage we're looking at this morning, be imitators of God and walk in love. Amen? It wasn't a loud enough amen. Maybe we don't like this. Open your Bibles with me, would you? Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're going to start at verse 25. In the Sanctuary Bibles, that's on page 978. 978. Please take out your Bibles, open them, and keep them open because we want to work through this passage together. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen? May God bless the reading of His Holy Word. There is so much here that clearly we're not going to be able to get to everything in this passage in the fullness that we want to, but as an overview, we're going to get to as much as we can, and we start with a couple of points that will get us situated and give to us a context from which Paul's working here. And then we're going to turn to Paul's thrust. So here's our first point. You can put it in your notes. Here's how we want to think about the context here. Number one, we are grace-built, gospel-changed individuals. 
We are grace-built, gospel-changed individuals. Everything that Paul talks about in this section and on for the rest of this letter is based on and depends on that, that previous reality that he's already laid out for us. Hence, the word therefore in verse 25. You can take a look at verses 22 through 24 that lead up to this verse. And you'll see that there, Paul wanted us to understand what it means to what it means that we have learned Christ. And if you look at the last part, verse 24, he says that we are to put on the new man, created after the likeness of God. In other words, we are new. We're a new creation. Paul already tells us that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Those who are in Christ are a new creation. And Paul's saying, look, you have been changed by the gospel. You're a new creation. Now live like you're a new creation. He's going to tell us what that newness looks like. Now one of my favorite things to do is listen to people's testimonies. I love hearing about where people were when the gospel came in and changed them. I love hearing about what happened when the Lord took hold of their lives and transformed them. And one particular thing I love is when I hear about someone's story, about what they were like before they came to Christ, about their old selves, and I love when it doesn't make any sense to me. It is so foreign to who they are today that I don't see any of the remnants even of that old man in them. I love it. Recently, someone was sharing a story about their mother who is a believer. I know her only as a woman of faith, uh, but this woman was telling me about the story before the story and about what kind of person she was before Christ took a hold of her life. And I just kept thinking to myself, it's not possible. She has been so transformed. Glory to God. God's grace is what makes us new. His grace is what works to change us. And then we put on the new self that he's already created us for, created for us. In other words, and I know that I sound like a broken record sometimes, but all of the imperatives, that is all the commands about how we are to live, are grounded first and always in the indicatives, that is what we already have in Christ and already are because of Christ, which is ours by grace. So let's remember this and put it this way. We don't become Christians by putting on the new self. We are Christians by God's grace, and so we put on the new self. We're grace-built, gospel-changed individuals. That's our first point. Here's the second. It's vital to grasp, and I don't want you to miss it. Here's number two. Grace builds a new community, not only new individuals. Grace builds a new community, not only new individuals. And it doesn't build a new individual that is not meant to be in a new community. The Bible doesn't have much to say at all, maybe if anything, about Lone Ranger Christians. Note well in verse 25, something Paul assumes about us that he's writing to. We are gospel people, and so we are members one of another. Do you see that there in verse 25? It's very important. We are members one of another. My heart breaks when I hear Christians who don't think they need to be in church. Not only are they missing out, but the church is missing out. Imagine a part of our physical body decides to take the day off, not show up. 
It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way, and neither can the body of Christ work if we can't have the body here together to be fully functional and healthy. Paul's reminding the Ephesian Christians of what he's already been saying to them and to us. In Christ, we are one, so we need to act like it. We are members one of another, and that is part of what the gospel itself has done, what grace has done. If we're members of one another, that means that there's an assumption in that of closeness in the local body. An assumption of mutuality. An assumption of interdependence. An assumption of living life together. Day by day. So when Paul offers here in these verses what the newness of the Christian life is to look like, he is offering the newness of Christian community. How we can thrive for the body to pursue and maintain unity and maturity in Christ, for it not to come apart. Here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to live. So here's our third point, which is Paul's focus in this passage, and it has a number of sub-points. Third point, grace calls us to build up not break up community. Build up, not break up community. And there are many ways, beloved, that we can break up community. And Paul knows it. The series of imperatives that Paul gives follow a pattern. It's put off, put on. Right? The Christian life isn't just some sort of neutral position. Well, just stop sinning and that's good enough. No. First of all, we can't. Not without God's grace. But there is a putting on There's a whole new lifestyle that we are shaped for. There is a true reversal of the fall that is taking place in us as the Spirit sanctifies us. Notice again verse 25. Here's the first put off and put on command. Put away falsehood. Put away lies. Put away deceit. And put on instead honesty. Speaking the truth. Beloved, we know that lies and dishonesty destroy communities. In fact, I want you to think about it. Today, I believe that we may be the most skeptical people to ever live in the history of the world. And I think we have good reason. Because everybody's lying to us. Everywhere we turn. There are so many ways that people deceive one another. So many people spinning information any direction they want to make us believe what they want. Dishonesty, as we can tell, as people living in this society, creates profound instability. We can't have that in the church. Dishonesty destroys trust. There was a time that we could trust the news. There was a time. They weren't trying to persuade you of their position, just tell you what's going on. Not so anymore. Speaking truth comes, beloved, in a variety of ways, though. It has to do with honesty. It has to do with being faithful to our word and our promises. It has to do with not taking advantage of one another. Lies are selfish, deeply. Usually meant for some sort of self-protection or some sort of self-promotion. That's what it is. I don't know, we've talked about it before in Bible studies as well as sermons, I think, but the reality is, in today's day and age, social media allows for an enormous amount of dishonesty. Enormous. The Facebook version of ourselves or the Instagram version of ourselves may be what people see, but most of the time, it is so far from reality that it actually is a way of hiding from each other. I think we can call it anti-social media, right? 
Because most of the time, it prevents closeness. It prevents transparency. Yes, honesty is is sometimes harder than dishonesty. Sometimes it's riskier. Sometimes being honest means confronting one another. We must. Sometimes being honest is uncomfortable and may open doors that could lead to conflict. That's true. But beloved, only truth can bring real healing. Only truth can bring real resolution. Only the truth, as Jesus said, sets us free. Paul says, out with the lies, in with honesty. It's the only way forward for God's community. But look at verses 26 and 27 because there's more. He goes beyond just telling the truth and lying. Verses 26 and 27, something else we have to put off is anger. Actually, look at the text carefully because he wants us to put off sinful anger. In fact, Paul's actual command is to be angry. (laughs) Do you see that there? The command is be angry. Just do not sin. Interesting. Here's what Paul understands. Even righteous anger, and there is righteous anger, even righteous anger, if left unchecked, can easily become the occasion for sin and the occasion for temptation to sin. We know that. Not all anger is sinful. Jesus was angry when he went to the temple and they were doing things they shouldn't have done. We, as God's people, should be very angry at injustice. We should be angry at sin. That's true. But Paul's helping us to see that the new man doesn't allow anger to control him. He controls his anger. It isn't always, beloved, anger itself that is the issue. It's what we do with our anger that is often the issue. Paul says here, look, don't let the sun go down on our anger. It means that we have to limit that. Temper it by by going to the Lord and thinking rightly about it. Anger can easily blind us, can't it? It changes the way we see things. What do you say? We see red, they say. If we don't tame it quickly, it can quickly get out of hand. If we take it to the Lord, if we assess it according to His Word, if we try and put it in the proper context of our own sinfulness and God's grace toward us, we'll find peace. If we allow it to control us, to grow untamed, if we assume our own assessments are accurate and don't allow the gospel to speak into even our anger, we can very easily destroy relationships and never be able to restore them. Think back to Cain and Abel, right? Before Cain killed his brother Abel, you know that anger had gotten hold of his heart already and the Lord saw it and the Lord spoke to him. The Lord said to him, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. He didn't say those words, but he said sin is crouching at the door. He was talking about Cain's anger and instead of Cain controlling his anger, the anger controlled him and he gets up and he kills his brother Abel. Do we, at times, kill relationships in the church out of anger that has controlled us may it not be paul sees something deeper here though too don't miss it look at verse 27 
Paul tells us that it's not just a human issue. There is a, something spiritual going on here. There is a spiritual battle. There's something otherworldly taking place because there is an enemy who is looking and waiting to pounce when we allow anger to control us. And he'll find his foothold. And the devil will come in and take that opportunity. Don't give him the opportunity. Put off anger. We must. Look at verse 28. Paul keeps going. He helps us to see how the gospel mindset changes even the way we use our hands. Our labor, our possessions, our skills. The gospel changes everything. He says, put off stealing. Don't steal. Don't take advantage of others. Don't look for ways to plunder and pilfer. Don't be a schemer. Some scholars point out that there are those at the time that Paul was writing of the working class, but whose jobs were more seasonal. And so there was this I guess normal way of doing things is that during the off-season, they would make a living by stealing and taking what didn't belong to them. It was almost like they thought, well, it's okay, since my job ended, this is what I have to do. And Paul says, no, the gospel reverses that mindset. It doesn't matter that the whole world might say it's okay, the whole world does it that way. We are different as God's people. We understand that stealing in whatever form, from outright stealing to deceptive business practices to plagiarism, it is all of the old man and we must stop. It's not ours to take. As I mentioned before, it's not enough to stop what the old man was doing and there's a reversal that's taking place. We put on the new and we hear this all the time, beloved. Work smart, not hard. How many of you guys have heard something like that? Yeah, forget it. It's awful. I think Paul would have hated that saying. I hate it. Sure, work smart. That's true, as long as it's honest. But also work hard. Always. Don't avoid working hard. That breeds and endorses laziness which cannot honor God. Look at the language he uses here. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. That word labor is a word that can be translated work hard. It has to do with the intense kind of labor, physical labor that people would do. He tells them, use your hands, get dirty, put in the effort. In fact, though the ESV says, doing honest work with his own hands, a more literal translation would say something like, working with his own hands, the good. In other words, the purpose of working hard as a Christian is to produce good things. Clint Arnold said this. And Paul explains why. So that we have something to share with others. Do you see that in the verse? Specifically, share with those in need. You see the reversal of the mindset that the gospel brings. Instead of trying to scheme and figure out for way, uh, ways to steal and, and get for ourselves, the gospel mindset is, how can I work hard, sacrifice, so that I can meet somebody else's need? But is this how we think of our work, our income, work to meet other people's needs? Now, of course, we, we take care of our own needs. We're not supposed to depend on others. We, we work hard to take care of our own needs, but we're also looking for ways to sacrificially give and serve because we're gospel people. Another sermon on this topic, I, I put it this way, use your hands to be His. Use your hands to be 
the Lord's. Before we move on, I, I want to take a minute here. Notice that word need, the language of need here. It shows up in the next verse too, and it's important because if we're going to fill people's needs, we have to see those people's needs. And if we're going to see those people's needs, we have to see those people. We have to know them. We have to spend time with them. We have to be open and honest with them in this church. We have to know each other in the local church. There is an attentiveness the gospel brings to us that Paul's highlighting here. Attentive to needs, to struggles, to battles. An attentiveness really that requires proximity and time. we got to be near each other and we got to spend time together. We must do it. That's why that young woman who felt so alone is such a heartbreak for me. Beloved, we have to be attentive to the body around us. We're members of one another. Let's keep going. Look at verse 29. Let's push. You know, more damage is done to community with our words than anything else. Would you agree? If you think about how you've been hurt by someone in the church or how you've hurt someone, I would venture to guess that it is most likely because of something that was said. Gossip, slander, harsh words, misunderstandings. Obviously, we know that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside of our hearts? What's going on? That's what the gospel is changing. Our words matter, beloved. How we speak to each other, it matters. When we come to church, when we are with the body of believers, we should be paying careful attention to our words, and we should ask ourselves the question, are we speaking grace to the church family? Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. No corrupting talk. Paul's language, by the way, is pretty colorful here. He uses a word that means putrid or rotten. Let no rotten word, no putrid word come out of your mouth. Put off that way of speaking. I don't know if you've heard this saying. I don't think the kids say it much these days anymore, but we grew up saying it all the time. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Have you heard that? That's another one to forget. It's another one to forget because how untrue. What a lie. Words hurt often. It's often words that are the most harmful, the most hurtful. Now, listen, what I'm not saying, and someone's going to say something. I'm going to have to correct myself here. I am not saying words are violence. Not saying that. Okay? I am saying that we have to realize, as James tells us in chapter 3 of his letter, the tongue may be small, but it is mighty, and it does mighty damage in the church too. I know that most of the damage I have done in my life, most of the hurt I have caused has been with my words. Paul says, no rotten words. But it's not just putting off, it's putting on. Put off those words, but put on a whole new mindset, a whole new approach to our words. Speak only such, Paul says, as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That phrase, fits the occasion, is a translation of that same word for need in the previous verse. That's why the other, transla- or other translations of this verse say, according to the need of the moment. It goes back to what we said. We need to know each other well enough to care about each other enough to speak according to the need of that moment. We have to be so filled with the word of God that what comes out is words of grace. Speak properly to each other. We have to look for ways to build up to meet spiritual needs, emotional needs in the body around us. 
course, sometimes the words that we want to say may not fit the occasion, and so we need to have the grace to remain silent. Sometimes we have hard but really important words to say, and so we have to have the grace to be willing to speak up, but do so gently. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the word says. Look at the end of verse 29. That it may give grace to those who hear. This is the goal, beloved. We are filled with grace to pour out grace into other people's lives. But verse 30 is central. It's an important reminder for all of this. If we continue to speak words that are putrid and rotten, if we continue to not care for the needs of the body around us, then we will grieve the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us. Paul's already explained that we are people of God who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. It doesn't say, by the way, that the Spirit leaves us. It doesn't say that the Spirit gets angry with us. It says that we grieve the Spirit if we live that way. So when we speak destructive words instead of upbuilding words, I don't know if you guys had this kind of relationship with your parents, but I still remember the look on my parents' face would be enough when I acted in a way that was unbecoming. They may not have gotten angry, sometimes they did, but the disappointment was even worse because I knew that they desired better for me and I knew I should have done better. The Holy Spirit grieves when we wrongly use our words because he knows the damage it does both to the body but also to us individually. The grief of the Spirit is what we call the grief of a desire for better things. There's more, Paul says, to put off. Look at verse 31. He throws in all these related terms. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. He puts it all in there. There seems to be a crescendo. Notice it. It starts with a heart that is bitter. It has a distaste for someone. But that then festers and builds up and then becomes wrath and anger and then explodes into clamor or shouting and then we kill with our words. No, Paul says, put that off. We're Christ followers. We're different. Look at verse 32. Instead, we're to be kind, tender-hearted, compassionate, forgiving. All these things could be a sermon on their own, but we don't have time right now. Grace calls us to build up, not break up, community. Here's our fourth point, the last point. Grace makes us walk in love. Here's Paul's thought. Look at the chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says this, we're God's beloved children. In other words, we're born from above. We're, we're saved by the love and grace of God. And now we have in the sonship of Christ our own sonship. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We are children of the living God. We are born of His love. We must walk in that love. It's our identity. We must imitate Him. Really, both Father and Son. The Father sent the Son. Christ gave Himself up for us, Paul says. That's how we need to live for others. We surrender our rights. We give of ourselves for the brothers and sisters that surround us. We are who we are because of the grace of God alone. He loved, though we were not lovable. And so we love those who, even in the moment, are not very lovable. We are children. We must have a family resemblance. And through the Spirit, we can. I've shared this story before a while ago. I'm not sure if anyone will remember, but 
It's so appropriate to capture the, what grace-built community looks like that I thought I would share it again as I wrap up this morning. It's a story about a, a Pastor Weber. Apparently growing up, this pastor had a really bad temper. It stayed with him, we're told, throughout college, and then he joined the military. Not sure that helped. As he entered into ministry, became a pastor, he stopped playing church league basketball because he kept having bouts of anger and embarrassing both himself and his church. The way the story was told, apparently after a decade or so, this pastor was feeling pretty good that the Lord had helped him to grow and he hadn't lost his temper for years at that point. But then, he says, his son made the varsity basketball team and, quote, I began living my life again through my son. The author who was writing about this pastor writes, Weber terrorized the referees. On one occasion, he was seated in the second row. Weber wound up on the floor level with no recollection of how he got there. He received nasty letters from church members who he says now, quote, were absolutely right on. At the same time, Pastor Weber got another note, one from one of his accountability partners. And the note said this, I know your heart. I know that's not you. I know that you want to live for Christ and his reputation. And I know that's not happened at these ball games. If it would be helpful to you, I'd come to the games with you and sit beside you. Pastor Weber later said that this brother saved his life. That's community, beloved. That's grace-built community. That's imitating God and walking in love. What that brother did for Pastor Weber, it is truth-telling, it is grace-speaking, it is tender-hearted, it is spirit-empowered. This friend showed the gospel's grace and maintained the unity of the Spirit rather than disrupting it. May we do likewise. We are grace-built, gospel-changed individuals. Grace builds a new community, not only new individuals. Grace calls us to build up, not break up community. And grace makes us walk in love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is faithful, it is true, it is good. And it can often be so convicting. We praise you that when we hear a message like this of what we are called to do, we are not left to our own devices because we never could do it but for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have poured out that grace upon us. You've already made us new, and so now we can walk in newness. Strengthen us, Lord. Cause us to walk by the Spirit faithfully. Help us to not be discouraged when we fail, but instead turn back to you, Lord, again. Trust in your forgiveness and your grace. Get up and walk some more. We want to be the church you've called us to be. Give us the strength, the courage, the humility to be that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.